0: Matthew chapter 16, if we would, Matthew 16. We'll be picking up in verse 18, but I just want to give a little background. Matthew 16, uh, 18, but look at 14. So whatever that is. Kind of left off in the middle of a thought last week, but that's just the way it goes. It says, and they said in verse 14, some say, um, sorry, Jesus asked them, hey, who do you say that I am? In verse 14, it says, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You know, one of the things we face today as a nation is who's Jesus. And everybody's got an opinion. You go out and you go to a university, say, who's Jesus? You go to your neighbor. Who's Jesus? You go to your grandma, your mom, your friend, your son, your daughter, your friend, everybody. Who's Jesus? And everybody's got an opinion. So Jesus is asking them, what's the word on the street? What's everybody saying about me? And here's their opinion. The highly religious society said, hey, they're trying to make sense of him. They're trying to figure out who he is. And some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the other major prophets. That was what everybody was kind of, that's a consensus of what people are saying. And today we could say, Hey, what, who do people say that Jesus is? Who is he? He's a great teacher. You know, he was a radical Jewish rabbi and he was all these other things. And people start put their spin on those things, but here's what it comes down to. Jesus flips it around. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? doesn't make a difference. What ultimately pastor Matt says. It does, but what your mom says, what your dad says, what your professor says, when it's all said and done, you stand before God. When I stand before God, what? Who do you think I am? Who is Jesus to you? And Peter replies, verse 16 You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Two aspects that Jesus. Well, that Peter reveals here about, he says, You're the Christ. He's a Jew. He said, that means the one that the prophets have been speaking about all this whole time the promised one, the one that was said that would come to save Israel from their sins, ultimately to save the world from their sin. You are that one. You're the Christ. And you are the Son of the living God. You're not just any Christ. You are actually God in the flesh. You are the son of the living God. Jesus isn't, isn't just some prophet. He's not just some great teacher. He is the son of the living God. That's Jesus's true identity. How did Peter come to that conclusion? Well, he went to some great Bible classes. He truly really did actually. The best ever. Well, Jesus knows. Verse 17, how does someone come to the fact of who Jesus truly is? How does this come into the heart of a man? How does this come into a heart of a woman? How do you come to this understanding? And everybody has an opinion about that. Only one matters. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, man, you're blessed, Simon. Oh, how happy you are. Why? Why? Bar Jonah means son of Jonah, by the way, he says for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, you received divine revelation. And the implication here is that not just that Peter said the right words, the implication is here is that he believed it that he was the Christ, that he was the son of the living God. And Jesus says, the way you came to this isn't by someone teaching you. That's a man or you didn't learn it from your dad. You didn't learn it from all these other people even though they might've communicated certain things to you and all that kind of stuff. Ultimately it is God who has to open your heart, your spirit, your mind to who Jesus Christ is in order for you to believe upon him. He said, you are blessed because the father has revealed me to you. This doesn't come by any way other way, but by actually God intervening in the hearts of men, because there is a blindness In our hearts, there's a hard heartedness. There is a death that is upon each of us. Ephesians chapter two, and God breaks through the darkness and he speaks his son into our hearts. Listen, if you've been following along with us here in Matthew, we've got a problem. Because the disciples aren't getting anything spiritually whatsoever. Amen. Jesus is like talking about, Hey, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they, what are they doing? Oh, we forgot bread. Oh no. You know, and they didn't know who Jesus was. And he's walking on the water. He says, come out to me. And Peter has this moment where he's like, yeah, I get it. And then he sinks. Right. And so there's just this constant battle of, of having an understanding of the things of the spirit. Anyone else relate? And so there's been a a struggling, especially with Peter here. And we'll see that play out through the rest of the gospel. But to understand anything spiritual whatsoever and but here, Jesus says to Peter, man, the father has revealed this to you. He's given you the spiritual understanding, man, you are blessed that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter came to the knowledge of Jesus and that implies he believed and he came to that knowledge because the father revealed it to him, not by flesh and blood, but but by God. Let me ask you, how does that impact your witness to the world? Who's doing the heart opening? Who's doing the revealing? Who's doing the change of heart, the change of life, the change of mind. Who's doing that? And it's all over scripture. And yet we partner with him in the gospel. He opens our hearts to the son. He puts his son in our hearts and then he makes us witnesses of his son. And we testify of the son and God by his spirit does a miraculous thing in people's lives. As he sees him alive in us and the words we testify are according to the truth of who he is. God's spirit opens up people's hearts who are respond. I don't know how it all works. Okay but people receive Christ and and the heavy lifting is on God's part. Amen. Nevertheless, he says to go, how are they going to hear unless they have a witness? And that's our role in this to be responsive, but think about that and how that impacts our evangelism to the lost. Do you trust God to open people's hearts? Think of that person who's hard hearted and you're just going, what can I do to change them? I think our prayers need to shift and go, Lord, Open the eyes of their hearts. Lord break through the enemy's deception in their life. Lord break through the truth. May I be a witness to that. May the words I say, testify to that. Use me, but God do this spiritual work in their heart. And if the church prayed according to his will, what would happen? Not that we're stopping God, but man, I think we grieve him a lot. And I think he's trying to teach us like Peter, to stop focusing on the bread and start focusing on the spirit and just trust in him and pray and, and live that way. And think about that in not only for the impact on our evangelism, but how we pray for the lost, but also for the church one another. Do you think we need our eyes opened? And we actually see this pattern in scripture flip over to Ephesians chapter one chapter uh, verse 15 through 21. It's not going to be on the screen. Ephesians 1, 15 through 21. Check it out. This is Paul praying for the church. And what happens is he's teaching the Bible and he'll start telling them how he's praying for him. Then he'll teach the Bible and they'll tell them how he's praying for him. This is Paul. This is a, this is a pastor here. Amazing. I got a lot to learn from him. We do too. I'll just, I won't teach the whole thing, but just look, 15 through 21. I'll read it for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Listen, I heard that you're believing in the Lord. Why? And what happens as a result of that verse 16, I don't cease to give thanks to thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give you what the spirit of wisdom, And of revelation of knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Opened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the works of his great working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not also in this age, but also in the age to come. I'm praying that you would know him in his fullness. This is how we need to pray for one another church. We pray for our hurts and all those things. And yes, because that's a manifestation of love, but what we need above everything is we need to know him and he is revealing himself to us, but to pray in this way that God would open our eyes even further to his, to who he is and all we are in him. I mean, just look at that passage. And I think even as we read that, we get lost because Paul's on a run-in sentence. Anybody else, you like start reading three verses. You're like, okay, I get it. And then you're like, Ugh, where's he going? He's going where he's been. What God has revealed to him and he's sharing it with you of how massive Christ is. But listen, you're never going to value it. You're never going to see it. You're never going to love him unless God does that work and opens his opens your heart. And so we pray for that. We hunger and thirst for righteousness and God answers those prayers and we grow in him and he changes us. It's his will to do that. And so there's this partnering of our will with his will in this. And it's a beautiful thing. And I don't understand it fully still searching it out. Don't have the answers. Amen. All I know is that God does this massive work and yet he calls us to believe in him and follow him. So we do by his grace. And so you see, Peter understood Jesus because the Father showed him, and you understand who Jesus is. Why? Because Matt's a great teacher. Oh, man, you're blessed. Why? It wasn't the result of a natural learning. It was something that natural man cannot know in the sense of believing unless God did it and he's in the business of doing it. He does it through us. And this is how we grow spiritually. God teaches us by his spirit. Amen. Through his word to us. And unless God opens our hearts and our hearts are open to God, we can't understand with a heart that believes and we keep focusing on earthly things. But he's faithful, isn't he? Yeah. We end up being like Nicodemus. When Jesus is saying you must be born again, he can't get to the spiritual understanding. He might even be able to understand it conceptually, but he couldn't believe it. How can I answer into my mother's womb a second time? He's like, you're a teacher of Israel. You should know this. In other words, you should understand these spiritual things, but you don't. God had to open his eyes. Like Jesus's discussion to the Jews in John six about the bread of life. I am the bread of life on the man that came down from heaven. What are you talking about? We got to eat your flesh and drink your blood. They couldn't understand. And here's the thing. We have an adversary. Paul in 2 Corinthians four, four, and I would write this down. If I were you, it's pretty important. Why don't we see Why don't we see why doesn't everybody believe in Jesus? Those people you're ministering to and love and care about. Why? I don't, you want to know why? Well, here it is. It says in second Corinthians four, four says he blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is in the image of God. He blinds their minds. How's he do that? The world, the flesh, through sin, he blinds us. He's at work. The enemy is at work. And it's so much easier to see his work than God's sometimes because we live in it. That is the kingdom that is here right now. So how do you defeat a spiritual enemy? With spiritual weapons. Put on the full armor of God. Put on Christ. Put on his word, church. Learn how to pray according to the way he calls us to pray. People are fortified with lies about God. And there needs to be a spiritual focus and a spiritual attack with the truth. Like Jesus used it. It is written. And the Lord by his spirit tells, tears down the fortresses and the strongholds. I don't want to get weird, but that's the imagery of the actual words that are used in, in the scripture that the enemy has a fortified power, like a fortress over people's this, the shield that is up that they can't see Christ. What tears that down? Well, the power of God and he uses us as we pray according to his will and as we preach and as we live and as we testify to the truth. I think it breaks things down. But the question is, are we about that? Do we see that? Where's the enemy at work in us to keep us actively Christian, but ineffective. So we pray that God would reveal Jesus to the lost and to the saved and that he would continue to open the hearts to the knowledge of his son. And so Peter has this revelation of who Jesus was from the father. And Jesus says to Peter in verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And here we enter into some interesting doctrinal things. Some believe that the rock that Jesus is talking about is Peter that the church is built upon. And that's why you have the first Pope being Peter and all the popes after that. No, that's not what's going on here. There's a play on words. Peter means stone and rock is a variation of Peter, which means like foundation stone bedrock. Two different words here. What Jesus is saying is not that Peter is the bedrock, but rather the divine revelation that Peter just said, concerning the identity of Jesus, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that is the bedrock of the church that will be built upon knowing him. He is the cornerstone. Jesus is the bedrock, but make no mistake. Peter is a foundation because we all believe in his testimony. What he just declared right there, and the apostles declared, and they lost their lives for—minus John, and obviously Judas. And so Peter, in a sense, would be foundational in the formation of the church, in the sense that he would—he just what he just declared would be the foundation that the church is built upon. Listen, we—the church is okay. Got a back. I'm going to stick to my notes. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't want to. (laughs) It'd probably be best for you. So he, he just declared and would declare that he would be the, the, that Jesus would be the foundation of the church, right? That Jesus is the son of the living God. Peter was not the head of the church. Jesus was not saying, Hey, I'm going to make you the head of the church. Although he would be the head of a local church, so to speak, the instrumental in that he was one of the leaders, but let me just say this. This is the first mention of the word church in, in Matthew's gospel. I believe first mention of the word church. And so they're sitting here, they're going along with Jesus. And all of a sudden Jesus says, I'm going to build something called a church. Well, we learn some things about the church and, and don't worry. I'm going to get back to Peter in a second here, but notice whose church it is. And I will build My church. So, who's the head of the church? Who builds the church? It's his. You come to this fellowship, I might be a servant among you, but who's the head of this church? The Lord Jesus Christ. It's his church, it's his authority. He's the one who builds it. And we get some insights into the, who, who the church is. The church, the word church is like the gathering or the call. It's really the called out ones. The ones who are called out. The iglesia, the gathering, the called out ones. Called out of what? Out of the world. Out of sin. Out of death. And called to faith. Called to eternal life. You're called out. God has revealed the son to you. You've believed upon him. You are now by faith, born again, born into his kingdom. You've been called out. How are they called out? Obviously the father reveals Christ to them and they believe they believe what Peter declared. And so the Christ was promised to save the world from their sin to all who believe in the son a living God who rose seated at the right hand of the Father, he has authority to give eternal life to anyone, who believes. So you have the Christ, the one who died, you have the Son of God seated at the right hand of the Father, giving eternal life to all who believe. Here's the Lord Jesus ruling and reigning and he calls people to himself. Has he called you? How do you know if he's called you? because you believe upon him? You've responded, but listen, he's been calling. He desires that none should perish and all should come to repentance. And the gospel goes out, but there's a hardness of men's hearts and there's an enemy. So how many of you believe right away? Maybe when you were young, amen. How many of you, it's like, well, it took a lot of dynamiting for God to get into my heart. Amen. And yet there's still people. So he is calling people to himself, but we know that not all will come. And there's a lot, there's a lot more to that as well. No, one comes to the father unless He calls them. So there's both sides of that coin. God's calling. People are called if they won't come. Why won't they come? Because of the hardness of their hearts. There's a lot there. We've got an enemy. And so Jesus builds his church. It is built upon him. He is the foundation of whom Peter testifies. And here in describing the church, Jesus used the imagery of a building. He wants us to kind of understand the idea of a church. We're kind of like a building that's built, and he and he is a, a spiritual building. We're we're doing we're you know as Marcus talk in Eric's been working on. We're looking at the foundation of the building that's going to be out there. What's it going to be built on? Well, what do they got to do to do that? I don't have a clue. But I tell you what, if you build it on sand or you build it on a marsh, or you like decide, hey, let's just just start throwing up walls on the dirt, we're going to have issues. You've got to have a solid foundation that's going to last. And as you read the new Testament, you're going to see the apostles, both Peter and Paul speak in this imagery of a spiritual building. That's the church. And Peter describes Jesus as the living stone prophesied in the old Testament, the cornerstone, the stone that was set that all the other measurements were taken from how you built it. That was the cornerstone of the temple and all the other walls were, were squared with that and built upon it. He is the foundation. He's the, he's the cornerstone. He says, as you come to him, first Peter two, four through five, if you're taking notes, as you come to him, remember who's Jesus talking to in Matthew 16, He's talking to Peter. Here he is later on. Who's Peter talking to the church. He's saying, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones. Wait, what's he doing there? Your stone, he's the rock. Who's the cornerstone? Jesus, but we're like him. We're like living stones. He says that he uses that imagery there. But as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. To be holy, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Listen, we're a temple. The church is a temple. Talks about us invi- individually. We're a temple. Amen. Where the Holy Spirit dwells, but he doesn't just indwell in me. He indwells what? In you who believe and we are built together to be something that glorifies and magnifies and worships and praises God together and how we live and what we proclaim. Amen. We're, we're priests. And we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He is the living stone and we are like him built upon him. And Peter is drawing here from Jesus in Matthew 16. Paul also uses the imagery to describe the church in Ephesians chapter two, 19 through 22, Ephesians two, 19 through 22. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens talking about the Gentiles. there in Ephesus. You are strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. That's the Jews and members of the household of God, specifically believing Jews. You were far off. You've been brought near. You were aliens. You were strangers, but you've been brought in. How now? Now, what does that look like? Verse 20, verse 20. And you were built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also bring, being built together into a dwelling place for God by who? Spirit, wait, I thought Jesus built the temple. I thought Jesus built the church. Wait, the spirit builds the church. So who wait, who who's doing that? Yes. God is building his church. Amen. But notice you're built on the foundation of whom? The apostles and the prophets. And who are they testifying to? The foundation, the testimony, the testimony but what what Peter was testifying that he is the Christ old Testament. He's the son of the living God, new Testament. That's who, we, what we're built on. And all that means all the teachings that apply to that of who he is. And Jesus would go on to say, and he's similar emerging. Unless you build your house upon the rock, what's going to happen to you? You're going to be destroyed. And that's a picture of hell. Unless you're built upon me, When it's all said and done, judgment's going to come and no one will make it. Only those who are built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, of what Peter said. And so Jesus is saying that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you're built upon Jesus, this is all the hell you're ever going to experience. It won't prevail. Light and momentary afflictions, Paul calls them. How many, how many does it feel like light and momentary? Feels pretty heavy and hefty watching you guys suffer physically and all the other things that go on. But Paul in his wisdom says, listen, the heaviest that this world has to offer. Light and momentary. Compared to the eternal weight of glory. I just picture an ocean being dropped upon us. When we step into his presence, the weight of his glory. That's what's ahead. Hell is real. It's a place where those who reject Christ spend eternity. God will justly send them there. I know people have said it. I've probably said it myself that God doesn't send people to hell. People send people to hell who reject Christ. No, he sends them to hell. He's actually the, he sends people to hell who reject his son. He's absolutely just in doing it, but he also, and when we, when we minimize that, we also minimize his grace. He sent his son to die that he thoroughly saves us from hell. Not only now, but all eternity. it is finished. Man, how powerful is He? How gloriously merciful he is. So this morning, if God is revealing the Son to you, don't harden your hearts or surrender your life to him, now, believe that he died and rose again. Turn from your sin, turn to him, believe upon him, and you will be saved. Amen. And Jesus so, tell, then turns to Peter. After saying, Hey, listen, the gates of hell is not going to prevail against what I build. And I will give you, speaking to Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Speaking to Peter here. And this is why many people go, Okay, he has the authority of the church. But if you fast forward in Matthew 18, he's not talking to just Peter, he's talking to the gang. And by the gang, also us. So this verse has been warped in some circles to mean that because we're born again, also we just get to command demons around and we get to just have authority and we can do whatever we want and all this kind of stuff. That's not what this is talking about. There's a context to it. You know, it's not the word of faith movement and such. Listen, he's giving Peter the keys keys uh, speak of what? How many people have, how many people have the key to your house? you got, you've got the key to your house. That's great. Who, who do you give the key to your house to? Anyone? No, no, no. You don't give unlimited authority and access to anyone. No. Who, who do you give to people? You decide to give that key to Jesus says, I'm giving you Peter, the key to my house. Why would he give Peter the key to the house? Because what's he going to do with that key? He's going to wreck the place. What's he going to do with it? He's going to do exactly what the owner of the house would do. See, it's delegated authority. Delegated authority. That's really important to know. I'm giving you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom. By the way, the disciples, and by the way, us, the keys of the kingdom. In what sense? You have access to the kingdom of heaven. How do you have access? He says, I'm going to give it to you. Jesus is going to make access. Who's the door to the kingdom? I'm about to die. And we know this is the context because Jesus, in just a minute, is going to start talking about him dying. He says, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, Peter. And all the other guys are listening there. You're going to have access to the kingdom. How do you have access to the kingdom? Because you just declared what the father revealed to you You have access because you have belief in me. I am the gate. I am all these things. I am the access. You have this access. And guess what? The person with access has. He has the ability to give that access to others. And that's what the church is commissioned to do. To go proclaim the access to the kingdom of God. This is the only way into the kingdom of God. Here it is. And Jesus and, and Peter proclaimed it until he died. It was crucified upside down. Apparently. Amen. He had access, but also it means authority. Now the apostles had a special authority and that they were given power over demons and all this other kind of stuff. I mean, they were given, they were raising the dead and all that kind of stuff. And I know God does that. However he wants he's God, he's sovereign. But looking at the new Testament, you see that they were given specific high access authority. Like we've got different keys keyed to different sections here. You know, you just can't like bust in with a janitor's key into, you know, the church office. Well, maybe you can, I don't know. And you know what I'm saying, right? Guest access, I would speak. But Peter, I'm not saying that we're all, We're all equal in Christ, but he has made the apostles special. They were given revelation. They were raising people from the dead. They were doing all these things. So they, in a unique sense, had a a certain authority that was given to them. You see that in, in the new Testament, correct? But we also have authority in Christ Jesus by the nature of being in him. We have authority to pray. We have the authority to preach. We have the authority to declare someone's sins forgiven or not. Now, check this out. That is not based upon what I think. That's based upon what he says. Any authority within the church is simply based upon the one who's given the authority. It is all based upon the word of God. And those are the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. His words. And at the center of that access is Jesus Christ. But you enter in and you have all of this teaching concerning Jesus Christ. All these things about Jesus Christ like that we go over all these things. You're kind of like handing the keys to the kingdom. We're giving them out to you and you're accessing your, your understanding about Jesus and you the Lord's teaching you. And so you have access to the kingdom through the teachings of Peter and what they taught us but what they taught us is not their own coming up with. It's what Jesus taught them. You see what I'm saying? It's all zeros back to the, any authority in this in that we have is the authority that God gives through his word. It has to square up with what he says. That's what I'm trying to say. So Peter's not just making stuff up here. And so there's authority there. First of all, that the apostles had, but also that we have your kids, the King pretty exciting. Ask anything in my name and it'll be done for you. Not just anybody gets to ask that his kids do. Who are his disciples who ask according to his will. There's a lot there. So he has spiritual authority. And we, we've talked about that a little bit and I probably need to clean that up later, but he's speaking directly to Peter here. And again, later he's going to talk to everybody. Matthew 18. We'll get that when we get there, but real quickly, verse 20 and then in verse 21. He says 20 and 21. It says, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. <laughs> you have this awesome revelation. I'm going to give you the keys. Now don't say anything about it. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ quite yet. Why? Verse 20 One from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. They had an understanding, an elementary understanding of who Christ was, but they didn't have a full understanding of who Christ was and what he was to be about. Check it out. Here's this revelation. And you're the Christ. You're the son of God. How many of us know Jesus on an elementary level? They didn't understand the Christ that they were thinking he was the king, the one who was going to come in and take over the Romans and all that stuff. That wasn't going to be happening. First, something else had to happen that the prophets testified to. What was it? He came and tried to show this disciples. He's telling them that he's got to go to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day rise again. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. And this is my plan. This is the plan of the father. I'm going to go die. Going to Jerusalem to die. He just had told him, don't tell anybody. And then he begins to tell them his plan. What's going on. This is a major shift. All right. And what happens here? Verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. How many of us can relate with Peter at that moment? Man, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. All right, Peter, man, God's revealed that to you. Now I'm going to go die. No way. No way! Far be it from you. He takes him aside and starts telling him, "That's not the plan. That's not happening. You are not dying." And we can all kind of get it. He didn't want to see Jesus get hurt. He's just saying, "What you're on your mind?" Kind of a thing, you know. How many of us? We kind of go, hey, "You know, his heart was in the right place." Actually, it wasn't. The compassion he had was actually demonic. Isn't that weird? It really was. How do we know that? Verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, man, you are looking back at the bread again, Peter. This speaks so much to Satan's influence upon Peter. And we know Jesus later, he goes, Hey, I know Satan sought to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. There was a war going on in Peter's heart. And there is a war going on in your heart. There's a war going on in my heart. There's a war going on in this church. And we go from mountaintop of God's revelation to the gutter of our own worldly perception in two verses. Anyone else? Anyone else? Yes from having this marvelous revelation to saying, no, Jesus, you can't no way that's not happening. Jesus saw that the enemy was influencing uh, Peter. Satan is so good that we can even be fooled to think that Peter's motives were, you know, he had a good heart, you know, when actually, He went from uttering the truth of God to the deception of the enemy in just a few verses. And Peter was struggling with discernment here, spiritual discernment, like he has been. Anyone else? He was still spiritually immature, not being able to discern what was of the Lord and what was of the devil, what was earthly minded, what was heavenly minded. The enemy wants us blind to the will of God. You know that church? He wants you blind to the will of God. And he will use our immaturity to try to thwart the will of God and the immaturity of others around us to do that. They're they're not on our enemies. We're not each other's enemies, but what does it take? It takes spiritually mature people to discern what's going on. Amen. And who's the most spiritually (laughs) mature as if he could ever mature Jesus. Jesus. And he speaks into Peter. He knows Peter. Peter says something like, Oh yeah, just don't go to the cross. Listen, the enemy wants a crossless Christianity for us. He didn't want Jesus to go to cross. He doesn't want you to go to the cross. He doesn't want you to deny yourself. He doesn't want you to fall after Jesus. You can go to church all you want. You can pray. You can do all those things, but in a religious way, but when it comes to actually denying yourself, And follow the Lord. That's another thing. And he wants us to be blind to the will of God. One moment we'll have great insight. And the next we're uttering nonsense. And here Jesus comes along and and sets Peter straight. And he says, Satan, he says to Satan, get behind me. Right? Who is influencing Peter? Satan. That's a lot to unpack. Have fun in your life groups. But Jesus had to clear that up right away. This needed to be dealt with. Immediately. And it does with us as well. Verse 24. We need spiritual insight. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Anyone who's going to follow me, get yourself ready to die. The enemy is telling you this morning, stay in your sin. You are in control. God exists for you. Stay in that sinful relationship. Continue to live for self and not for God. Jesus says, no, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself. You must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. He's mentioning the cross before the cross. The cross is not taking Jesus by surprise. Anybody. And he's telling you, you've got a cross the cross comes before the crown church. Following Jesus means that he is Lord. You are not. He calls us to deny ourselves. That's our will for his. We must take up our cross. That is, you must be willing to die to yourself. And Paul adds daily, and you must follow Jesus. So die. I'm uh, sorry. Deny yourself, die to yourself and follow Jesus. As a Christian, that's what Jesus did. And so, if the Holy Spirit is working in you, you are going to have a conflict in your soul every day, all the time, <laughs> between your will and His will. And what does Jesus say your lifestyle should be? Deny yourself, die to yourself, and follow. If you don't do that, man, you got miserable Christianity, fruitless Christianity. And that's not what the Lord has for you. Verse 35, forever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Hear the deception that the enemy gives us, that life is found in our will and our wants above God's will and his wants. And we live our whole lives like that. And we live it without meaning and purpose. I think that's life, you know. Jesus says, if you believe that, if you hold on to your will, your life, you're actually going to lose it. He's speaking of judgment. We know that because the next verse talks about it. You might have fun for a season, but that season will end, and you'll slip into eternity without life and depart into utter darkness. Darkness. You'll lose your life. Jesus is serious about this. He's so serious he squares it up with Peter, right then. But if you lose your life for His sake, notice it's for His sake. In other words, you give up your will to his, you actually find life. That's the life he offers. It's through the cross. The enemy wants you to think that Jesus is, Jesus is the death to all fun. It's the death to all fun. Well, if your definition of fun is flesh, then yes. But if you want to have real life, he is the key. He is the door. He's the way. And once you enter in and the old life stinks. It's fruitless And the world mocks it. They mock that he's the life. They mock everything that is good and holy and precious. And the reason why the world mocks it is because they are under the control of the enemy. And so in every Hollywood production, the sinister evil person is going to be a pastor. It's going to be a religious person. Anybody who is a virgin is mocked. Purity is mocked being, you know, actually defining marriage is what God calls it is being mocked and they flip it around on you and say, you're unloving, you're unkind and all these things. And you're out of your mind and you need to be squashed and silenced. Where do you think that's coming from? We've watched the insanity go over our culture. Listen, this is God's judgment upon us. We lose our minds. We've, he's given us over. And we believe the lie because we've rejected Christ. And there's a hard heartedness and a, in a rolling deception that is exponential and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse until we are upside down. We're here. And so don't think that there's a political solution to this. There is no, I just want to preach hopelessness to you right now in the political realm. No political solution to this. What's the solution? Jesus Christ. Go against the stream. Live for him now. Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is taking your natural life to its best possible earthly outcome. You've got billions in account. You control nation. You've got power and you've got all this stuff. He says you, that is the best the world has to offer. You have meaningful relationships. You have kids, you have family, you have all this stuff and you lose your soul. What is your soul? You cut your arm off. That's not you. You cut your other arm off. That's not you. You Cut your legs off. That's not you. Cut your head off a little bit. They got you, right? So you are the software inside the hardware. You are spirit. Do you know that? The world wants to teach you that you are just body. No, you're an integrated being just like a person gets into a car. When you die, you get out of your car and you go to before God. Make sense. You lose your soul. What's going to profit you. It does not translate. You cannot buy your soul with anything. The only thing can buy your soul. is the blood of Jesus Christ. And he paid it in full. Jesus says, if you follow him and you believe upon him and you lose your life, you actually find life. I give you a new soul. I give you real life, eternal life. But if you hold on to it, you're going to lose it. How do we know? What is he talking about there? Verse 27 as we close, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will pray each person according to what he has done. Talking about judgment, revelation. Repay each person according to what he has done out of the good things, good out of the bad things, bad. Listen, he's talking about eternal judgment here, but what did he just say previously? The gates of hell will not prevail against what the church. (laughs) If you're in Christ, you're built on Christ. This is not happening. You are not getting judged in the sense of eternal fire. That's been dealt with on the cross. Praise the Lord. Never to face the wrath of God. It was poured out upon his son thoroughly and completely on that day. You are saved. It's coming. We're at a crossroads. And Jesus says, verse 28 says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. That's actually the beginning to the next section. They stuck it here at the end. I don't know why, but we'll get there next week. Listen, this is all sobering stuff. We have a glorious savior and he's so good and he's so kind. And he is the head of this church. It's the head of our, our lives. May we worship him in spirit and truth. Amen. May we follow him this week. May we glorify him. May we ask him, Lord, how do I die? Be sensitive to his spirit. And maybe we go be a witness. Maybe we see the people in our lives and pray for them in a new way. Maybe witness to them in faith, not in fear, knowing that God can do what he wants to do. So have hope, church. God's more powerful than any opposition and any enemy. Amen. Who is that person you want to see come to Christ? Amen. Pray. Lord, tear down what the blindness. Let them see you. And you might go, I don't know all the verses. Grab a little flyer, I'll, I'll preach to them, sure. You know what I mean? It's a shameless plug there. Invite them to your home group. Take them out to a Bible study. Share with them. Ask people who know what's going on, how to witness and and let's just get into each other's lives and pray for the lost in this church. Amen. Pray for them. God loves them. Poured out his son for them. Let's be a part of that. Amen. May his heartbeat be ours. Lord God, we want to thank you that you are, you have risen from the dead in your life. I just pray for this church. Bless us, God, as we go. Thank you for blessing us with the knowledge of your son. And I pray for anyone this morning who has not yet to surrender to you. And Lord, you have revealed them to them this morning. In your heart of hearts right now, turn from your sin, confess it to God, saying, Lord, it is as you say, I'm a sinner, and here are my sins, and call them out as they are, and ask Him to forgive you, and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and His punishment took your punishment to cleanse you from all of your sin, and believe that He rose from the dead. And in that he will give you eternal life. And it's not something you earn. It's something he gives freely through faith. And you'll find yourself built on the foundation, a part of the church called out from the world and begin to walk in him. And now pick up your Bible, begin to pray, begin to fellowship with Christians and grow in who he's called you to be. So Lord, we ask for those people right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Take care. And if you like to pray or talk about any of this, I'm here for you.